This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The minds of people that work at companies like Nike or Bed Bath & Beyond, Tiffany's, and many others are more now than ever looking to make that connection with the consumer. Big data, obviously, is a very important part of that, but so is also understanding what goes into the thinking of a consumer on a particular item or just their thoughts in general. And that's why the medical practice of psychology has become a very important part of the retail sector. Vanessa Patrick looks at these types of tendencies in her research as professor of marketing at the University of Houston. She's on campus today speaking to the students of our friend Americus Reed, who you hear on Sirius XM 111 as part of the Marketing Matters show on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m., Welcome to Philadelphia. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, The job of being a consumer psychologist, I think if we went back 10 years, I don't know how many people would have really thought that to be such an important part. But now it seems more than ever, retail chains need to have that psychological viewpoint on who their consumers are. Yes, this is a great time to be a consumer psychologist. There's definitely an understanding uh, amongst marketers about the need to understand the mindset of the consumer and what's going on in that black box. Uh, So for a long time, we were quite comfortable with just observing consumer responses and saying, well, we put up a sale sign and consumers buy. And we don't really care why. Today, however, retailers are much more interested in understanding the why behind behavioral uh, consumer behavior. How did you get involved in this in this area? So, um, well, I have uh, been in marketing for quite a few years. Uh, I did my MBA uh, in India, mm-hmm. after which I joined advertising agency, J. J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy and Mather, before I did my PhD at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about being in advertising as an account executive is that you have to actually sell design to, to a client, mm-hmm. and you have to make into a intuitive inferences about why that design is going to work and couple that with marketing research insights. One of the things about marketing research uh, typically done in corporations and by corporations is that it focuses more on just the whether somebody would buy or not and the psychology behind buying without understanding the theoretical mechanisms driving that. And that kind of informed how I've uh, viewed my research over the past 10 years. Uh, you know, I've got the background that says, well, I used to sell these designs. I used to uh, talk to clients and tell them why this would work. Mm-hmm. But it came more from a gut response or a gut feel as opposed to real theoretical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And So when I started my PhD, I really started studying uh, emotions and uh, in the last six or seven years, really focusing more on design. How is it, though, that that this kind of realm of of consumer psychology really came around? Because I think for a lot of people, you know, that are just out there, you know, mom and pop America, 
uh, they don't think about this. But but it realistically, you said before we t- uh, started this that this is something that's been around for a little while. Yes, I mean, people have been studying the psychology of everyday life for many, many years. So uh, I, I see consumer psychology as a branch of psychology which really focuses on consumption behavior mm-hmm. and not only buying, but everything from how we dispose products, how we can uh, consume products, how we buy products, how we perceive products. Right. You focus a, a, a decent amount of your work in terms of the relationship between marketing and aesthetics. So uh, how, do, how, is that, how does that, that relationship come together? So, you know, my research largely focuses on what I like to call the two sides of the pleasure coin. On one side, uh, we, I, you know, consumers focus on the pursuit of pleasure and uh, marketing, the, the marketing of aesthetics, art, luxury. This, these focus on just pursuit of consumption for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another side of the coin, which is kind of the management of pleasure. Uh, some of my work on self-regulation uh, ha- focuses on how we have to manage that pleasure because we can't always give in to those pleasures. Uh, but, well, you asked me about the marketing of aesthetics. Design is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything from the way a faucet is designed in a bathroom to the shower to a furniture piece or to packaging design. And so really, I look at marketing uh, aesthetics very broadly. If you think about the history of aesthetics, uh, philosophers have been talking about aesthetics you know, all the, all, since, since Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, for the most part, the philosophy of aesthetics has focused on natural environments and art. So the the philosophy dictionary defines uh, aesthetics in terms of the sublime. Mm -hmm. Um, More recently, there is a branch of philosophy which is focused on everyday aesthetics, which talks about the fact that our everyday life is filled with aesthetic aesthetic experiences. And so my interest lies more in an everyday consumer aesthetic. We're talking with uh, Vanessa Patrick, who is a professor of marketing at the University of Houston. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So in terms uh, of of the design, uh, the, the, the term that I saw in one of your papers is, is called design salience. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain what that is and, and how that plays in here. Design salience, as we define it in that paper, is just the fact that design is an important aspect of the particular product. And this is a trend that we've been seeing recently, uh, largely because consumers respond very well to design and marketers have realized that this is a differentiating factor because if you think about the functionality of products mm-hmm. uh, a lot of products pretty much do the same thing. What allows one uh, company to differentiate their product from another mm-hmm. is design. So for example companies like Dyson and Apple, their focus is on design largely because it allows them to differentiate themselves and create a certain aesthetic that is associated with that brand. And the interesting thing is is that one design which appeals to one consumer might not appeal to another. Absolutely. So that design process is constantly changing 
for a lot of these companies. Absolutely. And so the need to have your uh, finger on the pulse of the consumer and their changing views of aesthetics is really important. There's very little academic research that is actually focused on that. So that's a that's a process that continues you know, it's it's a constant process. It's one that doesn't slow down in any way, shape, or form because Absolutely. the thought process of the consumer, it changes quite Absolutely. a bit. Absolutely. So, you know, Dennis Dutton, uh, who is a aesthetic philosopher, has talked about the fact that aesthetics is a human universal. Huh. What that means is, regardless of where we are in the world or regardless of how far back you go in history, aesthetics has always played a very important role. But the form that that aesthetics takes changes. So what is considered aesthetically appealing in one part of the world may not necessarily be aesthetically appealing in another. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we don't appreciate aesthetics. It's just that aesthetics is ap- appreciated differently. And the design itself is something that I, I would guess that many people see as I- I- something they've attained in some respects, especially if they're buying you know, a beautiful faucet uh, or you know, a, a great suit for a man or something like it's something that they're able to attain because of their their lot in life their financial setup in life at that moment Absolutely. Um, And designers recently have focused much more on the user. There was a time where a designer was considered an artist and they basically created this work, they created this packaging and the consumer, like we have to with art, have to basically be what is called disinterested, which is, hey, we have to accept that the designer had a motivation. Today, design is much more user-focused. It focuses on what what helps the user. And the user-focused design uh, is really taking taking off right now. I like to actually refine that even further and call it insight-based design. I think you need to understand the psychology of the consumer and derive an insight about that consumer and develop design based on that insight. So, for instance, I recently saw... uh, a product by Dyson called the Airblade. Mm-hmm. So Dyson, of course, you know, uh, vacuum cleaners and all has as vacuum yep. cleaners. You know, the vacuum cleaner. Um, the the owner John Di- James Dyson, I think, yeah. uh, he took fifteen years to develop that machine and took about. 5,000 prototypes because he just wanted to get it right from a consumer standpoint. But the Airblade is a faucet, uh, a tap, and a dryer all in one. And it's got this beautiful airplane wing design. And it's based on the insight that most bathrooms, public bathrooms, you have to wash your hands and then walk across the bathroom and find a towel or a a dryer. And this says, why do we have to do that? Can't we create an integrated design where that consumer is not doing something awkward, leaving a trail of water on the floor? And it's really based on a consumer insight. And the design, of course, is beautiful, aesthetically appealing, but it's also user-friendly. It's based on something which says, this is how we can improve everyday life. Hmm. We're talking with Vanessa Patrick at University of Houston on campus speaking uh, to the uh, marketing class of uh, America's Read. You're, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. You did a paper uh, as well that looked at uh, the effects of postponing temptation, 
which, uh, you know, considering we've just started the new year a couple of months ago, that obviously is quite a uh, quite an important uh, issue to bring up. Most people, when they have those New Year's resolutions and they they have that temptation, they they break them really quick. Usually, mm-hmm. probably within the first few weeks of the new <laughs> yes. year. How many how many people do you think are able to sustain these types of uh, of thought processes and temptations now, as we are, you know, at this time of the year? Unfortunately, very few. So January 17th is the official break your resolution day. That's 17 <laughs> days after New Year's. Uh, and so, you know, the... the, uh, the that doesn't give many people confidence <laughs> on, on these... I think I think there are many reasons why people uh, are unable to stick to their resolutions. Uh, but to focus on the specific insight, a lot of my research in the self-control realm focuses on the fact that self-regulation is difficult. It's not very easy to 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 manage your pleasure, your desire for pleasure, or uh-huh. your desire to have uh, something that you really crave. And so, what I like to focus on is what I call compassionate self-control, okay. which is. How can we develop self-control interventions that actually allow you to exert self-control but don't deprive you or don't take away from making you feel good about the choice that you're making? So a lot of the stuff that uh, we see in self-regulation relies on willpower and relies on the fact that we need to constantly be vigilant and uh, express this uh, self-control. but as we know, self-control can be depleted. And so we know that it's very hard for us to keep on exerting self-control over a repeated time. Hence the 17th January. Sure, yeah. uh, uh, you know, all temptations uh, go to die. Um, so... Uh, With this particular research, what we focus on is a strategy by which consumers can allow themselves to... Uh, feel that, sure, I can have this temptation, but just not now. So it's a postponement strategy that allows people to, uh, at the heat of the moment, when they are faced with that chocolate cake or they are (laughs) tempted to do something like smoke a cigarette, they just say, you know, sure, you can have it. I'm not depriving you, but not just now. And what happens and what we show is that when you postpone temptation at peak desire, your you you learn from that you when you reflect on it you say well uh, I probably didn't want it that much right. uh, and and we show that the learning mechanism or the self le- self reflection is what's driving the um, the ability to sustain the self regulation for a longer time and, and obviously when you're talking about something like the the couple of examples that you gave uh, with smoking a cigarette. Or you know a specific type of food that you really like, those can have real world effects for a lasting period of time, and in those cases, specifically a person's health as well. Absolutely, and I think that self regulation is a decision that we have to make, and we have to make set goals that are realistic. But we also have to have uh, plans by which we can put strategies in place to allow us to pursue these self-regulatory goals. So one of my earlier research papers, which uh, is very well cited in the media especially, is just a reframing mechanism to refuse temptation. So Mm -hmm. instead of saying, um, I can't eat chocolate cake when someone's offering it to you or to yourself, we basically say, take a more empowered stance with your language. 
say, I don't eat chocolate cake. And it's so surprising how it works. You don't right. get pushback when you say, I don't do something. And just a simple change of phrase, yeah. you know, instead of saying, I can't do something, say, I don't do something, automatically communicates to yourself as well as to others that this is a very uh, stable and empowered stance that doesn't really get shifted around yeah. and you find that if you say I don't do something long enough you actually really don't do it hmm. uh, and it's pretty fascinating that um, this this works this is something that is easy to adopt it's just a kind of a language trick if you if you will yeah. uh, that allows you to pursue your goals with something uh, like that philosophy specifically how more how more more frequent, do you see these types of things popping up into the mainstream uh, where people, you know, are able to say to themselves, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have that cake right now, or I'm not going to have that. Cake. You know, the thought process of the people themselves, it can affect them over time, obviously, for the positive. Absolutely. And, you know, people, uh, the media, uh, is really focused a lot on health these days sure, yeah. and in strategies that can help people um, make better choices. There's a lot of stuff, whether in, 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 in men's health or in women's health or in beauty and fitness magazines, there, there's a lot of uh, focus on things that allow you to pursue your goals because people are so busy these days with and and with so many competing uh, things challenging them on a daily basis yeah. that they are looking really looking for ways to be able to in some ways design a life that is a life that they want to have right are, are, are is that philosophy one that really applies mostly towards adults or do children come in? Because now a, a lot of retailers see children, you know, teenagers a, as very important consumers that they have to think about. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I don't know much research that has focused on uh, children, uh, children, and I'm it's not an area that I've focused on very yeah. much. I do know that there is a lot of focus right now in high schools to teach children uh, ways in which to cope with things like stress, yeah. uh, with with being able to refuse stuff, knowledge-based programs. We have a program in Houston that focuses on uh, high school uh, students and uh, on teaching them things like yoga and meditation yeah. so that they get exposed to these ways in which to experience life um, and, and maybe perhaps make better choices down the road and get better grades. Yeah, and it starts that process earlier so that when they're out of college and they're in the real world, Absolutely. It's, it's a kind of it's a thought process that's already ingrained Absolutely. in them. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much research which says that, um, well, there's very famous research by uh, Michelle, uh, Walter Michelle from Columbia that says that, you know, he tracked people and he said that the people who were able to delay uh, gratification as yeah. children in the very famous marshmallow studies, really, that was very highly correlated with their success in later life. So I don't think it's too early to develop good strategies. Does does the fact of how successful a person is financially within their career and their personal life, does that make any difference with 
the, you know, the pushing off of, of that temptation. I mean, you know, I would think that, you know, somebody that financially may not have the means, it's a little bit easier for them to push that off just because of the finance part of it. Whereas somebody that has money and has a good bit of wealth, it might be a little bit of a harder temptation to put that off. Wow, that's a really interesting hypothesis. Uh, I don't know whether there's any work that has looked at that. Yeah. There might be, uh, but it's definitely worth thinking about because I think, especially in you know, in a, in the age of abundance that we live in, yeah. it's very very hard to resist temptation because it's accessible yeah. and it's all around us. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney here in our studios in Philadelphia. We're talking with Vanessa Patrick, who is a professor of marketing here at the University of Houston. Uh, before we let you go, what specifically are you You're speaking with America's Reads class? What specifically are you talking to them about today? So I recently uh, uh, wrote a paper which is in press on everyday consumer aesthetics, yeah. which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, about how aesthetics plays a role in everyday life. And so we are going to be discussing a bunch of papers that I've written. Um, some of them uh, some of them have more of a psychological bent, which is, for instance, we're talking about a paper on why people like glossy things. So we know <laughs> that people actually like glossy stuff. So that's really not... Uh, so interesting. What's interesting is why. And so this particular paper looks at a series, uh, has, has a series of studies in which we essentially try to understand why do people like glossy stuff? And to do that, we have to rule out a bunch of, uh, of uh, explanations. So one was, hey, we like glossy because we see glossy all around us and we associate glossy with the good life. Yeah. So glossy magazines, luxury goods. And we basically say, no, um, well, uh, it's not only that. There, there could be something deeper to it. Uh, by and, and we do that really by showing children glossy pictures who have not been socialized sure. really. Right. Um, and we find there's a preference for glossy even amongst children. Hmm. Uh, and the paper really came from the idea of an observation uh, of children. When children, infants, are shown glossy objects, they tend to lick them. <laughs> really? And so this, uh, this, was a, this was an observation that was in a, in a, in a paper from a few, many years ago. And uh, we said, well, there must be something more to glossy than yeah. just the fact that we are socialized to like it or we think we are, it's pretty. And so we really um, take an evolutionary psychology look at this uh, question. Yeah, because and that's that's going back. I mean, you're, you're starting at almost the base of life. Absolutely. With, with some so kids, we, with some infants. We basically find and show in the paper that the preference for glossy stems from the need for water as a resource. Huh. And we show that if you're thirsty, you prefer glossy more. Uh, if you are blindfolded uh, and are asked to imagine uh, this, uh, asked to touch a, a surface that has either gloss or matte, yeah. you are more likely to think that the glossy is better. Mm -hmm. And if you are told that that uh, surface is a surface of a landscape, you are more likely to say that there's more water on that landscape. Huh. So the implicit associations that are very deep-rooted. So that's one of the papers we are talking about. I wrote that a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and it was published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology. Um, 
I'm talking about another paper, which is called Aesthetic Incongruity Resolution, which is really a, quite an interesting phenomenon. Uh, it's the need to resolve incongruity in our everyday environments. And this is something that happens to all of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we are gifted, let's say you're gifted a tie, which is, which is, which is really nice. It's an Hermes tie. It's really nice. Yeah. It's, but it doesn't match anything else that you have in your wardrobe. Right. What do you do with it? Do you go back to the Hermes store and return it? And we show that... <laughs> The rational thing to do is to remove the product from your environment. Sure, yeah. But we show that consumers don't want to do that when the product is high in design salience. We show that... uh, Consumers actually buy more. They accommodate yeah. their product into the environment, which is quite interesting. Yeah, they would much rather add a shirt to the tie or add a blazer add, to add the jacket. Add a whole bunch of and, stuff. Yeah, exactly. In fact, we've shown that when a product, uh, this is an un, this is unpublished and uh, current work, work in progress, uh, when a product is uh, purchased that you like and don't want to return, you tend to buy an average of two more products that can cost up to three times that amount of that initial product. Wow. So it's really an interesting phenomenon that kind of talks about the burgeoning of our wardrobes on one hand, but also the focus <laughs> of on aesthetics and the importance of aesthetics in daily life. Every clothing store, a men's clothing store, is probably waiting for that research <laughs> to come out. Exactly. Thank you very much for coming in. Great to meet you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.